Good morning. So it's amazing what people do when they get bored, eh? Um, you know, you ever notice how creative kids are, you know, when they get bored kind of stuff that they do? I remember when I was a young fella, we were out in a farm and we were bored, and so we decided to teach a cat how to swim. And so, you know, I had the tomcat from the barn. You know, Grandpa always warned me about that tomcat. I had him over my shoulder, and I'm patting him, and I sneak him up to the horse trough, and then I throw him in the horse trough. Problem is, he's over my shoulder, and the first thing a cat does when you make an abrupt movement like that is sink his claws in. So the cat never did quite hit the horse trough. But kids are creative, and uh, so last summer, I'm walking down the street, and, uh, and I hear this chant in the distance, a little bit farther down the block, 13, 13, 13, 13, 13. The closer I get, the chant gets a little louder, and I'm seeing it sort of coming out of this one yard. It's one of these big slab fences, 13, 13, 13. It's over and over, and I'm getting a little curious. There's a little knot hole in that fence. So I sneak up to the knot hole, I stick my eye up against the knot hole, Somebody pokes me in the eye with a stick. I reel back. I'm screaming. Aah! And all of a sudden I notice the chant has changed. 14, 14, 14. How many idiots are out there walking these streets that are curious? Jeepers. So anyway. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's funny. It's funny. Um, Lying in wait for me, they were. That's actually just a story I found on, I found on Facebook, and I changed it to fit me. So anyway, uh, just let you know that so you know I'm not lying to you, because the next thing you know, I'll have people coming up, how's your eye? <laughs> um, anyway. Oh, yes. Let's open with a word of prayer. God Almighty, we tell you we love you, and we thank you for uh, your love for us. Lord, I got thinking a little bit of what I am thankful for. And I'm thankful that your love is unfailing, that you desire nothing more than to forgive us and to bring us into that, uh, into that experience of your love, into that reality. Lord, that you have set eternity before us, that we are not just made for this life, we are made for eternity. So we invite you, come Lord Holy Spirit, and lead us there. Speak now today, Lord, pour out your word upon us, and we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I had the privilege here um, last, uh, last, weekend, last weekend to go to uh, Laloche, um, and um, we spent some time up there. Um, uh, I, as many of you know, I work with a ministry called Spoken Word Ministries, and one of the things that we do is we take uh, seminars into various communities and we teach on things like forgiveness and whatever else. Um, and we had, uh, we had been praying that God uh, would open doors for us, and so he did. And uh, one of those doors was into the community of Lalosh. And for those of you who have kept uh, abreast of uh, the news in the last year or so, you know that um, there was a school shooting in Lalosh and a number of people were killed and a number of people were uh, quite horrifically injured. And um, so a small ministry up there had invited us to come and share on the subject of forgiveness. 
And uh, we, we're going to do a little bit of an event on October 23rd uh, where we're going to do an evening presentation for those of you who are interested, you would like to come. Um, we'll have a PowerPoint uh, and then our team will be just sharing some of the stories of what we experienced in Lalosh. But I'd like to just share one uh, impression that I had. Um, we were in the middle of doing our weekend and we had the side door to the street open and people would walk in and walk out and all that kind of stuff. And we're taking a break and I remember stepping out um, into the street and I met two uh, nice looking women um, who were from the community and um, I introduced myself and we talked and, and they looked at me and they had very open countenances. Like, you know, I don't know if you've been in, in some of these uh, um, communities that have a lot of conflict or where there's lots of bigotry or anger or whatever else, but not always do you have a chance to look at someone with an open countenance. Their face is guarded and they're like, you know, whatever, right? But this, uh, this couple of ladies, they had very open countenances and they, they told me, they said, you know, we would love to come in and be a part of this, but we have to go drinking. I was really struck by that statement. We have to go drinking. Well, as we spent some more time in the community, one of the things that stood out for me was a graveyard. We went to the graveyard. And um, since the killings, um, the trauma in that community has just continued to roll on. Like it's just continued. The, uh, it's like the community's locked into this loop of self-destruction. I've never seen a graveyard, I don't think, with so many fresh graves, uh, mostly by suicide. I've never seen a graveyard with so much traffic going through it in terms of people that go out and sit every day to grieve over the graves of their lost, uh, their lost loved ones. And I'm brought back to this statement by these two women. You know, we'd love to come and hear you, but we have to go drink. And their countenances were open, their face was open, their, their eyes were desperate and broken. And, um, and I felt that as I spoke to them, I could see this desperate pain that would not go away and that they were trying to cope, cope with. We have to go drinking. Um, and that's a bit of what we encountered in Lalosh. Now, as we went there, um, we felt God had opened a door for us, and certainly he did. And we had a number of experiences, a number of encounters where God touched lives. Uh, we got to spend some time in homes, um, and especially in one home where one of the daughters had been killed in the shooting. And um, we saw God show up in quite a powerful way in that place. So, you know, I want to thank you for your prayers. Um, it was exciting to go there. I felt like I belonged uh, as soon as we got there. Um, such a broken place, and yet so much potential for God's love. So keep Lalosh in your prayers. Um, there are people there that are trying to cope, and their eyes need to be opened to the love that God has for them and how he can help them come to a place of peace and move forward. So anyway, um, I've uh, chosen to preach a little bit today on the, what we call a pericope text. Uh, for those of you who come from sort of a mainline church background, 
a lot of the um, a lot of the mainline churches use what they call a pericope text, which is comes from the book of uh, the Common Lectionary, and basically what it does is it breaks your Bible down into a whole bunch of texts that you sort of go through uh, week by week. And uh, the advantage of following the pericope texts is quite simply this: it's that if you do this, you will cover your whole Bible in about two years, two to three years, depending on which which set of readings you use. <coughs> so, you know, it sort of keeps us preachers from just picking a particular bandwagon to thump, you know, uh, and it gives us a whole breadth of teaching. Anyway, you're blessed today uh, to, uh, to share with me as we get to talk about how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven. Kenton, I'm really sorry that I'm looking at you right now. It's, uh, there you go, right? Anyway, um, it's really hard for a rich man to enter he- heaven, according to Jesus. And so I want to unpack that a little bit with you. Um, I want to begin with a passage that comes out of Mark chapter 10. And this is the, uh, the passage of the rich young ruler. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. So apparently this guy's fairly desperate. Comes running up to Jesus, throws himself on his feet. I mean, I've only really done that once in my life. The consequence is, is I'm now married, right? So I mean, that's the kind of thing somebody does when you're sort of desperate. Yeah, and here's, somebody's getting poked over here, right? Anyway. Um, He runs up to Jesus and he throws himself on his knees before him. And he began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not fear, or do not bear fault. You know what, hang on here one sec. Change my glasses out. There we go. Whoa, there we are, okay. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But at these words, his face fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus answered them again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, pretty simply, it means I don't care how much money you got, you can't take it with you, right? There's a little story out there about the needle gate. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the needle gate in in Jerusalem. The needle gate is a gate in the walls of Jerusalem, according to the story. It's sort of narrow at the bottom and a little rounded at the top, so, and, and it sort of looks like the eye of a needle. And the deal is this. The deal is that a camel can't get through that needle gate when it's loaded. You've got to strip the camel clean, and the cam- camel will only go through that gate naked. And it's a great story, except that it ain't true. In the sense that there is no needle gate in Jerusalem, right? Uh, um, I did a little bit of research on that after I heard a, one of the preachers preaching about it. 
and you find out that it, this is a great urban legend, but it actually doesn't exist. That said, the concept of, of the needle gate, the concept of having to peel everything back is actually true. I've seen more than one rich man go out of this life. And uh, I've seen them go out in a little blue gown and a diaper. Uh, in, other, you know, in other words, you don't take it with you. You know, one of my uh, uh, interesting experiences with that was we, uh, at the end of my uh, first church, I remember when we felt like our time there was done, we, um, we, I turned in my resignation, we packed up the house, and we moved to Northern Lights, Saskatchewan. Anyone know where that is? Yeah, there's the odd one. The odd one, right? Art, sorry about that. Um, Northern Lights, Saskatchewan is just south of Hagen, Saskatchewan, which is over near Dormy, Saskatchewan, which is actually written Dormermy, so I don't know why they call it Dormy. Um, but it's sort of way out in the sticks, good goose hunting. Um, we moved out there, we spent six months on a small farmstead um, as we prayed and sought God for our next direction. And we went pretty, pretty stripped down, because when we moved out of Stony Plain, Alberta, we just shoved everything into a, into a storage unit and um, locked it up. We basically had one set of cutlery for each person in the family, so that would be about six sets of cutlery. We had six uh, plastic plates. We had a couple of changes of clothes each, and we went. Well, after six months of that, <coughs> we took a call out to BC, and I remember uh, going back to Stony Plain, Alberta, and we uh, cracked open the door of our storage unit, and the door slid up, and I suddenly looked in at all this stuff. And I thought to myself, you know, I could have just probably walked away from all this stuff. After six months without it, I'm thinking to myself, why do I need it, right? There's really just a bunch of junk in there. We did well without it. But you know, it's funny how uh, prior to that, I just thought I needed it all. I had another little experience. I uh, went preaching in Tanzania. Well, we landed in Nairobi on our way to Tanzania, and uh, British Airways had lost all of our, uh, all of our uh, luggage. And when you're on your way into central Tanzania, luggage doesn't really just follow you. So they looked at us and said, well, when are you, uh, you going to be um, back in this area? Well, that'll be two weeks from now. Okay, well, you can pick up your luggage in two weeks. So they took us into Tanzania, and I'm dressed pretty much in what I stand in. I, I decided, you know, I probably should have an extra set of underwear, so we went out into one of the marketplaces, and I found a nice pair of uh, boxers um, that was marked large. Turns out they weren't so large. Snug is what they should have been uh, marked. Um, anyway, that was me for two weeks. Uh, I had one extra pair of snug boxers that I could, uh, I could wash every night, hang in a window. And, uh, you know, if I had to move, I'd wad them up, stick them in my pocket, and I went. And we preached our way across Tanzania, across the bush country of Tanzania. For, that would be me, somebody's phoning me in the middle of my sermon. Um, we preached our way across central Tanzania for two weeks in what we stood in. And I remember a couple of weeks later, I got back and uh, I met my luggage and I looked at this big suitcase and I opened it up and I'm going, what the heck did I bring all that stuff for? I don't need any of it. 
See, this is one of the struggles with wealth. You know, wealth in itself is not bad. You'll remember the story of Job. Job was a wealthy man. And God uh, allowed Job to go through some very difficult things, and in the process of going through these difficult things, all of his wealth, all of his wealth, everything he had was stripped away. What would be the equivalent, in fact, it would have been worse than going through a bankruptcy situation. Because at least in a bankruptcy situation, they leave you with something. Job lost everything. Well, once uh, Job learned what he needed to learn, it says that he repented. He turned to God and he said, you are my God and I will worship you. That song, Blessed Be Your Name, has a little refrain in it. And it says, you give and you take away. You give and you take away. And still I will say, blessed be your name. And sometimes God allows that. Sometimes it becomes necessary for those of us who have been caught up in the stuff of this world to go through experiences like that. Why? Not because wealth is evil, but because of what it sometimes does to us. It sometimes takes a hold of us. It sometimes grabs us. It sometimes becomes our God. Oh, we go to church on Sunday morning, but we actually worship at a different altar. And God comes and he says, come and follow me. Come and serve me. And we say, God, I'm too busy with that. I've got my life. So Job had everything stripped away and to the point where he finally realized he didn't need any of it anymore. All he needed was God. And oftentimes God allows that. We wonder why the difficulties come in life. Because there are times we have our allegiances split between all these different things and God is sort of wedged in there. But God says, I am God. He says, I will not share my glory with another. I will not share primary allegiance in your life with another. That's not the way it works. That would be like me. You know, I got one wife. Well, you know, maybe I'll pack it up with a few. We'll get a few more wives going, hey. I tell you, my wife would not be willing to do that. She'd be saying, look, it's me or it's them. You cannot split your allegiances in that way and still worship God. And that is the challenge with wealth. So this man, he comes to Jesus and he says, God, he says, Jesus, he says, tell me what I have to do to have eternal life because he's worried about eternity. That's something a lot of us, we really don't talk about too much. Struck me a little while ago, you know, um, a couple of years ago, that uh, a lot of my preaching over the last six months, I was a young pastor, I was more than a couple of years ago, it struck me that a lot of my preaching in the last six months was, had nothing to do with eternity. It was all about how to deal with today, how to fix that, this, how to fix that, how to deal with this person, that person, the other person, how to struggle with, deal with my own personal struggles, blah, 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 and your personal struggles. But there was nothing about eternity in it. Jesus says that we're made for eternity. God has created for us, us for eternity. And there is something within us that knows that. And this man was experiencing that. He says, okay, I've got my whole life put together. He says, but something's missing. I'm still terrified of what's going to happen if I die. So he comes to Jesus. Jesus, this is all I need. Now, please help me. This fear within me about death, what do I do? And Jesus basically says, uh, well, you know, he says, keep the commandments. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. He says, you know, um, don't, uh, don't commit adultery. Who here has committed adultery? 
I'll tell you this, Jesus taught his disciples. He says, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Boy, suddenly we got a bunch of adulterers in this place. You know, he says, you haven't killed anyone physically, you've never squeezed a trigger, like the guy in Lalosh did. He says, if you've hated your brother, he says, you are a murderer because you have killed him in your heart. See, sins are not just outward things. They're not just the outward action. They, are, they begin in the heart, and when they actually get to the action point, they've already been committed in the heart. And so often, the reason that we can't find peace with God is because even though we don't do the stuff outwardly, it lives within us, and it consumes us. Well, Jesus could have given that little sermon to this guy, but he didn't because there was a deeper thing he wanted to get to. He says, okay. The, the, the guy says, I've done all that stuff. Well, really he hadn't because he breached all those things in his heart at some point, but, but he thought he had. But Jesus didn't confront that. He says, uh, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. And that's one of the things that we need to understand about Jesus. You know, Jesus is so loving And Jesus in his love for us confronts us in the things that will destroy us. Who do you have in your life that loves you enough to confront the brokenness in your life that's destroying you? Who do you have in your life that is willing to confront the selfishness in your life that is destroying you and your relationships? Jesus will do this. And why will he do it? Because he loves us. Well, he did it with this guy. And he said to him, okay, one thing you now lack. Oh, and he went straight to the guy's altar. Sell everything, let it all go, come and follow me. And the guy pulled up short. He's going, what? You mean I got to give up all my security and I got to give up all my toys and I got to give up all my stuff? I got to give up? Yep, sell it all. Everything that means, everything that you are holding on to, the thing that you go to for strength, I want I want to be in that place. It says the man thought about this and his face fell and he went away grieved for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. See folks, the reality is the selfish lives that our society trains us in and more than that, and we all have a craving to be, to be uh, secure. We all do. Jesus, Jesus can't coexist with that place in our life. This guy had his selfish life. I mean, he was good looking, he smelled good, uh, he had lots of money, he was, you know, in today's day and age, he would be, you know, the upright young kid that everyone wants their daughter to marry. But he had this idol in his heart. And Jesus says, you've got to let it go if you're going to come follow me. You can't trust in other stuff. You've got to trust in me. And that's what holds so many of us back. We start, and then we go, what happens if I take the next step? What happens? And Jesus says, you have to take the next step. You know, wealth, wealth is an interesting thing, because I remember one time I went down into the inner city, I'd been privileged to go down there to speak. There were a bunch of street people showing up to a Bible study that I did. And I took, I took a bunch of money one day. I forget what the Bible study was all about, but it entailed me giving everybody 20 bucks, right? So spoken word was young at that point in time. We didn't have a whole lot of resources. I just 
didn't tell Jacqueline. I took the money out of my account. Um, and uh, mind you, Jacqueline would have waved me through anyhow because she likes giving stuff away. Um, I took the money out of my account, and I think there was about 10 or 11 people there, and I gave them each 20 bucks. And I said, I said, no strings attached. You can do with this what you want. Now, I, was, I was actually sort of taught in uh, pastoral care class, when you're dealing with street people, you don't want to do that because they could go out and buy booze with it and whatever else. But I, I, the point of my Bible study was something about unconditional giving and um, so I just gave this. Now, it was amazing to me what happened because they all gave it away right away. One, except for one guy. One guy, he needed 80 bucks. Well, three other people said, yeah, here's my 20, here's my 20, here's my 20. The rest of them said, well, I haven't given any offering to the bridge lately. They chucked it all in a bridge offering plate where we, were, where we were doing our stuff. They gave it all away just like that, boom. And I'm going, you got nothing. You just got 20 and you just got rid of 20. Like, what is this? Easy come, easy go. But they demonstrated something to me. They all had this, this amazing freedom to give what they had. I met another guy, and some of you have heard this story. He was an old gentleman, um, um, and this was just this last year. He was an old gentleman, and he was diagnosed terminal cancer, and he was on his deathbed. He was quite well off, quite wealthy. He'd uh, lived a bit of a rough life. He was a religious man, had a religious background, all this kind of stuff. And he was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. He was given, at max, three months to live. And I got this frantic phone call um, one day on my iPhone on FaceTime so I could sort of see it visually. And um, my buddy, who was his, this guy's son, um, he said, my dad's on his deathbed and he's terrified of dying. The day he got his diagnosis, the fear set in. And not only the fear, but all the guilt. You know, a guy, a guy who's gone through five wives, a guy who's gone through a whole bunch of dishonest dealings, a guy who's been really, in many ways, life is all about me. All the guilt of his whole life piled up on him. And he's desperate, and he's terrified, and he's doing all his religious stuff. He was Catholic. He was praying, praying to his, his patron saint. He was working his rosary beads. He was doing all the religious stuff. And you know, I don't care whether you're Catholic, or whether you're Lutheran or whether you're Baptist, you know what, we all got religious rituals that we have been trained in that we oftentimes go to. And this guy, he was going to the rituals that he had been trained in and it was not working for him. And the closer he got to his death, the more frantic he got. And you know, as I listened to him, it struck me, he's Catholic. That means regardless of whatever religious rituals he was trained in, he also got some teaching about Jesus in there. I said, look, this is the thing that matters. I said, do you believe Jesus died to forgive your sins and that he rose from the dead to give you eternal life? And he looks at me, well, yeah, I believe that. Good enough. I said, I am going to see you in heaven. Can we pray? And we prayed, prayer sort of like this, dear Jesus, I believe you died to forgive my sins. I believe you rose from the dead to give me eternal life. And I am saying yes to you. You are my God and I worship you. Amen. And I hung up the phone. I got this phone call back about half an hour, an hour later. And my friend phones me up and he says, I got to tell you what, what happened after you hung up the phone. He says, my dad starts to weep. He's laying on his deathbed and he's weeping. And I'm going, dad, what's wrong? And he says, nothing. He says, what that guy just prayed with me, he says, hit me really hard in such a good way. He says, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. 
And you know, it's one thing to stand on a platform like this and say, I'm forgiven. It's, it's such another thing to, to see someone on their deathbed when eternity is at stake and all they can go is, I'm forgiven. Oh my God, it's amazing. Oh, this old boy, he just couldn't stop saying it. Anyway, he bounces back for the next two weeks. He's supposed to be dead tomorrow, right? He bounces back for the next two weeks. And when my buddy comes back into his room the next day, it's like his dad sitting up in bed, tears streaming down his eyes. And one of his old drinking buddies is sitting by the bed, tears streaming down his face. And the old boy's going, I'm forgiven. And that's all he could say. Everybody that walked into his room for the next two weeks, I'm forgiven. And he died. So amazing. So amazing. You know, wealth is, wealth is nice. But not when it becomes a replacement for God. Not when it takes the center of our lives. And, and the thing that Jesus is getting at here is he says, I know what is in the heart of a man. I know the greed. I know the desire to run your own life your own way and to set up your own security systems. But it can't work. I need to have that place in your life. Well, this old gentleman, you know, he was a little bit like the rich young ruler. Not quite, because at the end, he said yes and he made the trade. He exchanged his life. He let it all go. And he died at peace. That's an amazing passage. You know, I want to share with you about another rich man. As Jesus went out from there, this is Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. Matthew was a tax collector. They were known for being thieves, for being dishonest, for being only after the money, and they didn't care what they had to do to get it. They fleeced people, all that kind of stuff. And so here's Matthew, and he's sitting at a table, and he's got piles of money sitting at the table because he's collecting taxes. And Jesus comes along, and he looks into this man's eyes, and he says, you, come and follow me. And I don't know what the exact contact was, but something broke in the heart of Matthew. In that place of his inner hunger and his loneliness and his isolation of all that he had traded for his wealth, something broke and he saw in Jesus what he really and truly was made for. And it says he got up and he abandoned the table load of money and he went and he followed Jesus. And he became one of 12 men who changed the world forever. Then it, was, then it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. 
I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. You know, the reality of that, biblically speaking, the whole pack of them were sinners. But have you ever tried to te- talk somebody into, you know, have you ever tried to con- convince somebody that what they're doing is wrong when they don't want to believe it? I mean, that would be my dad talking to me, right? <laughs> Boyd, what you're doing is wrong. Yeah, I don't care. I'm doing it my way anyway. Oh my, ha- oh my gosh, I have a stupid child, right? Whatever. Jesus dealt with two groups of people. There were those group of people who says, I don't care what you say. I got it all right. I'm doing it my way and I don't need you. And then he had this group of people that had done all the stuff in the world. They had looked for all the things, the money, uh, whatever they could get to secure themselves. And yet it didn't work and they were hungry. And one thing I've learned about Jesus, Jesus does not spend a lot of time pouring himself into people that are not hungry for him. He goes to the hungry ones. You know, we have churches across the land in which we have become so religious. I I always like what Nicky Gumbel in the Alpha Course says. He says, says, I think, you know, if, if the Holy Spirit left, we could probably carry on. In other words, we become so religious that we don't need him anymore. We have our thing going. And why don't we experience God in those kinds of places? Because we don't need him. And he has gone on to pour himself into lives that are hungry. And that's what Jesus does. He says, I've come for the hungry ones. And I don't really care what they look like. And Jesus looks into hearts and he sees hunger and he comes there. Well, here's another little interesting passage. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking at his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. In other words, he was taken to heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, Hades is known as the place of the dead. It's actually, if we look at Revelations, it's uh, sort of called hell's waiting room. Ooh, now we're talking about hell. You know, there's a real drift in many parts of the Christian church today away from the concept of hell. And you know why? Because we don't want to believe that a loving God could ever send anyone to hell. See, the problem is, is we have chosen to interpret God as though he were a nice father, a nice human father like Kenton is. Well, you know, you're a good child. You know, you get an ice cream cone. Well, you're a bad child. We're going to stick you in the barbecue and turn the heat up, right? Like, give me a break. Which one of you would do that? Huh? You know? You, you didn't work out, I'm going to make another one, right? Like, if, if that is the way that you interpret God, you know, then the kind of logic that God can't, won't send anyone to hell works. But unfortunately, the scripture doesn't leave us much other option. It says there is a hell. Jesus says there is a hell. It's described as a place of torment, a place of eternal separation, a place of fire. 
And if there is a chance that it is true, I dare not downplay it. You know, I go back to my old gentleman who's laying on his deathbed, terrified, absolutely terrified of dying. Why? And then when he receives Jesus, the terror goes away. I'm ready to go. Why? Hell is described here. You know, interestingly enough, I I have a little bit of a different image. Studying Romans chapter 5 and John chapter 1. It basically describes Jesus as the light of the world. And it says that light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. Uh, Romans chapter 5 says that all people, all people are born under spiritual death, under spiritual darkness. And as I was thinking about this, Lord, why can't unsaved people get to heaven? Like, why can't they get in there? Is it just that you say you don't deserve it, you're not coming in? Or is it something else? And it simply is something else. You take a handful of darkness. You go into the blackest room in your house. You take a handful of darkness and you try to take that darkness into the light. It can't be done. And the Bible basically teaches that because of sin and separation from God, we have become a people of darkness and we cannot enter in to the presence of God. That's why Mary was terrified when Gabriel showed up and said, Oh, thou favored one. She had been taught that I am a person of darkness. And when the, when the glory of God comes close to me, he will destroy me by his very presence. Not because he hates me, but because I can't coexist in his presence. Does that make sense to you? When we say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts. We are forgiven, but more than that, we are transformed, it says, into people of the light. And as such, we are allowed, we are able now to enter into the presence of God who has loved us and created us for eternity with him. It has nothing to do with a shallow, nonsense interpretation of God who says, you're bad and you're good. Scripture says we're dead in our sins. You go out to the graveyard, you dig up a dead guy, and you drag him into your house and you try to have a relationship with him, you can't do it. Let's get out the paddles, right? Kachunk. If perchance he comes back, now you can have a relationship with him. But there is that transformational moment that must happen. I go to Lalosh, they're sitting out there by the graves talking to dead people and grieving a grief that will not go away because they're dead. Thank you for allowing me to be a little cranked up here. I'm not, yeah. This is so important, my friends. Listen to this. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. How did he get to Abraham's bosom? It's not just that he was poor. He apparently had a faith in God. And his sins had been forgiven. He had a hard life on this earth. And you know, one of the things that's been hard for me to learn is that there are times on this earth when life is hard, but God is merciful, but I am not created for just this earth. I am created for eternity. That means what's here right now is not the final story. 
I have an anticipation to look forward to. And that's actually what allows me to give up some of my demands for wealth because it's not just all about here. I have had to make choices in my life where I will go this way and I will get what I want or I will give that away so I can go this way and serve my Lord. And don't you, don't, don't think I have not second-guessed that. What the heck did I just give up? Periodically, the selfishness rears up. But God calls us in that direction of trust. The poor man who is totally in need of mercy received it. The rich man, on the other hand, it says that he spent his life in selfishness. He, he also died and was buried. And because he had no relationship with the God who forgives, because he chose to walk his own way, He ended in Hades. And he lifted up his eyes being in torment and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. Now you would think that a God of love, you would think that a God of mercy and compassion would allow that little bit of mercy to be shown. But again, you cannot mix darkness and light. And it goes on to describe that. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life, you made your choice. You received your good things to the point where you ignored all those around you that could have been helped. You were completely and utterly selfish. Likewise, Lazarus, he received bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, so he says, even if I wanted to, with all my being, there is fixed between us and you a great chasm, so that those who wish to come over from here cannot be able to, and and none may cross over from there to us. And then he said, I beg you, Father. Now this is the man talking. I beg you, Father, send Send him, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. In other words, he's asking for a visitation from the dead. Send Lazarus back. Send him to my brothers so that he may warn them that they will not also come to this place. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear, hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham. You know, if a great miracle happens like this, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even as someone rises from the dead. I've seen that over and over again. You know, I used to think that, you know, if only we could see the miracles. I've seen miracles. And it's been amazing to watch those who have seen some of the same miracles remain in their skepticism. Miracles are not the answer in that sense. It is the convicting work of the spirit. It is the proclamation of God's word that cuts through to the heart according to Hebrews 4 and lays us bare in his presence and prepares us for this relationship. Wow. Let me go on. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven or treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy. You know, I keep thinking about my little storage locker. 
open it up. What's in there? Last six months, man, it's moth, moths and rust. Don't store up that kind of stuff because it becomes meaningless. It doesn't do you any good. And where thieves break in and steal, you know, I think about Tanzanian pastor, uh, I shared on a PowerPoint a little while ago when we were, or not Tanzanian, Congolese. When I went to the Congo, we met an old pastor who the thieves broke in. The three thieves attacked his house. He was actually able to slam the door shut and the thief stepped back and pulled his gun and shot him in the face. He has an exit, an entrance wound here and it blew out his jaw coming down here and he has an exit wound down here. And he, and he laid in an unequipped hospital for days and then the whole city church put enough money together to send him to India to save his life. So you get talking to him. He drools constantly now. He has a rag and he mops the sides of his mouth. He drools constantly. He can't properly chew. Uh, he can't properly talk. It blew the end of his tongue off. And you ask him, and he has no money. And you ask him, so what's in the future for you? And he says, I will serve Jesus until I die. And you look at him and you go like, I wish, Lord, I could be like that. But you know, part of how you get that way is you go through the things. You go through the events in life that make you evaluate and make you drop one thing for another. And he has done that. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? I'll tell you where your treasure is. Look at where your heart is. If your heart is all about your money or if it's all about your toys or if it's all about your stuff, your heart is not on Christ. Don't get me wrong. It's not about not taking care of the stuff God's given you to take care of. It's not about not managing uh, uh, stuff. If God has chosen you to be one of those people, that's not what it's about. It's about what is, your, what, what is the thing that is most important in your life. He goes on, he says, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I remember when I started this ministry, I went through a time where I really struggled with money because God would not allow me to sort of set up my bank account and then trust him. I stepped out of my salary here. I stepped into, the, into, uh, into almost nothing and I had to pray every day that God would take care of my needs. And I didn't learn easy. And I remember the fear that came to me. And I remember getting so angry at God. And I remember being brought back to this passage. And God said, you are not serving me. You are serving your money. Oh, what do you mean, God? I'm doing your ministry. I'm preaching your gospel. He says, your heart says that you are not serving me. You're serving your money. And I found myself drawn to repent, drawn to surrender. You know, it, this little passage, it goes on and it says this, for this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life. Don't be worried. It sounds so simple. As to what you eat or what you drink, 
Not for your body as to what you'll put on. Life is more than food. Body is more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, but your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? You know, one of my favorite stories is praying for God's provision. And, and I got a phone call. You like beef? Yeah. Good. Bring your rifle and a chainsaw, right? Some dairy farmer out of town had had a heifer that had blown a hip and you know, if you can't get it on the trailer, if it doesn't arrive at the slaughter, the slaughter plant standing up, they can't slaughter it. So we were out, and I had a good uh, afternoon of Redneck Ministries International, right? <laughs> we had a great time. But I mean, these ways God began to provide for us. And, and you know, uh, he knows what we need. I can honestly say, over the years I've walked with this ministry, though I have fretted many times, God has paid for every bill all the time. Never have my children gone hungry. Again, though I have fretted at times. God knows what your needs are. Are you not much more worth than the birds? Which of you by being worried can add a single hour to your life? Well, you know what? I can take a couple hours off my life. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. What does that mean? You of little trust. I've learned trust in the place where I have to trust. And if you say yes to the call of Jesus on your life, that is where you too will learn trust. He will take you there. Do not worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing. See, it's not just about not worrying. How many times have you said to somebody, don't worry? I used to say that to my wife, don't worry. And it didn't seem to, didn't seem to take. She would say it to me, don't worry. And it never took. You know, she's nice, she means well, and she's telling me not to worry, and that's something I can't not do. So he says, don't worry, but really what he means is, don't worry about this trust in him. You don't know what the world brings, but you know who has the world in his hands. You don't know what tomorrow brings, but you know who has tomorrow in his hands. He says, for the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. In another translation, it says, the pagans, the unbelievers, eagerly seek all of this stuff. For your heavenly fathers know that you need these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He'll add it all to you. And he does. I want to close with this little passage here. For it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. And immediately the one who had received five talents went and traded with him and gave five, gained five more. And in the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and, bear, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves <coughs> came and settled accounts with him. The one who received the five talents brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted me with five, I've gained five more. The master said to him, Well done, and good, thou good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. 
And the one who had received the two talents came up, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I gained two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And the one who had received one talent came and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See what you have is yours. But his master answered and said, You wicked slave, you knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. You should have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, hear this, to everyone who has, more will be given and he he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have even what he has shall be taken away. What is he saying here? God looks at each of us. And in this passage, it says he looked at this guy, this guy, and this guy. And he saw that they each had different abilities. God will not give give you something you cannot handle. God will look at you and he will say, this is your ability level. And he will give to you according to your ability. And then all he says is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Use it. Now, you don't have to, you know, what? I mean, like, How do I guarantee you 100% return like these got? That's not the issue. The master said, you know, you should have just done something with it. Put it in the bank. I mean, what's a bank paying today? Half a percent interest? Stick it in a president's choice interest-free savings account, right? Do something with it. So you don't have to guarantee success. Just do something with it. And he says, for those who will do something with what he has given them, you will be used. You will be given more. And you will see the kingdom of God pour through you into this world. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. What have you been given? Are you freaking out? Are you worshiping the stuff? Are you stressing out about the stuff? You know the easiest way not to stress about it? Get rid of it, right? Get rid of it. Put your focus on Jesus. Give him that place in your heart. He has a plan for you. He wants to give you something and he wants to use you. You don't have to perform. You don't have to guarantee a result. Just use it in some way. That faithfulness will allow him to give you more and use you more. God Almighty, we come before you in the power of the name of Jesus. We tell you today that we love you. Lord, you put your hand on that place in each of our hearts and lives. And you use us. God, bring your conviction uh, to us wherever we have worshipped something or whether, wherever we may be holding on to the stuff of life in an unhealthy way. Strip it from us. Father, for those of us who are fearful, what happens if I let go of this? What happens if I really trust him? Lord, take us there. You can do that. But God, we don't want to be consigned to empty religion. We don't want to be laying on our deathbeds fiddling with beads that don't work. God, we want to be before you in our hearts with the proclamation of old Mr. Burns who just told everybody walking in his door, I am forgiven. And through that, Lord, you change lives. So Father, we love you and we thank you. And we receive what you give. Grant us to be faithful with that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.